In May 2002, Alexis Patterson walked to school and then disappeared. It has been nearly 20 years since anyone has seen her and conflicting witness reports have confused the timeline of the investigation. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to day 10 of the 12 Days of Crime Lines. I've chosen a bunch of cases on my suggestion list that are too short for a full Crime Lines episode, but all cases I think need more attention. This is a case that had a lot of local attention, but it was overshadowed in the national news by another case, and this one needs to be solved. I want to thank Tiffany for suggesting it, so let's get into it. Alexis Patterson was born in April 1995 to Ayana Patterson and Kenya Campbell. Their relationship didn't last, and in 2002, the seven-year-old Alexis lived with her mother, her stepfather, Laurent Bourgeois, and her baby sister in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. On the morning of Friday, May 3rd, 2002, Alexis got up for school and was in a bad mood. She had planned to bring cupcakes to school to share with her friends, but when her mom and stepfather found out she hadn't been doing her homework appropriately, they told her that she couldn't do it. That was her punishment for not keeping up with her homework. Like any seven-year-old who was facing a consequence, she was upset and also very disappointed she couldn't bring this treat. Laron then walked Alexis to her school around 8 a.m. The school was half a block from their house, so it was a pretty short walk through a solidly residential area. Aside from others going to the school, you wouldn't expect there to be a lot of people around or a lot of traffic. Laron said he walked Alexis about halfway into the intersection and then she went ahead and he watched her go into the playground area. Then he turned around and went home. At 3 p.m. when school was dismissed, Alexis didn't show up. Ayana assumed that she was still pouting about the cupcake incident and was just stalling on coming home. It was about an hour later that Ayana called the school to see what was going on and found out that Alexis was marked absent. She apparently had never made it from the playground into the school building. At the time, Alexis' school's policy was to call parents after two unexcused absences in a row. So a single missed day without a parent calling in wouldn't have triggered a call from the attendance office. And boy, do people have strong views on this policy. I certainly don't want to defend it because I actually don't agree with it but I also understand why they had it. 99.99999% of the time, the elementary school would call the parent for an unexcused absence. I guarantee it was because the parent forgot to call or didn't get around to it before the school called. And I say that from personal experience of getting the phone calls because I forgot to call. This wasn't a high school or a middle school where kids may have been skipping. I also don't know what the school's attendance rates were, but if this was a school that had low attendance, calling daily would take them half the day. But if the school, on the other hand, did take the time and made those calls every time a child didn't make it to school and the parents didn't call, 
This investigation would have been triggered at 8 a.m., not 4 p.m. or later when the Milwaukee police were finally called. But once they did get the report, the MPD took this very seriously. Searches were very quickly organized, and everyone at the school was interviewed. From what they could tell, no adult at the school saw Alexis that day. None. Not a teacher, not a playground monitor, not another parent, not a cafeteria worker. However, there were a few students who said they saw Alexis before school on the playground crying, and a few said they saw her on the playground after school also crying. Now, seeing Alexis after school doesn't make sense to me. School pickup time is swarming with teachers, parents, aides, and everyone else coordinating the chaos of a school emptying. So I highly doubt these sightings were of Alexis. Or maybe they were of Alexis, but from a different day. Why would Alexis leave school during the school hours, but then show back up after, but then be gone again by the time people started looking for her? It doesn't make sense. The morning sightings, though, do make sense. They align with what Laurent said happened. Alexis was upset about the cupcake thing, and he said he saw her go on the playground. That she would have been on the playground crying that morning made sense. And the police did consider this idea that Alexis made it to the playground, and then because she was upset, maybe even a little embarrassed that she couldn't provide a special snack that day, because she had gotten in trouble, she decided to run off. She had never done anything like that before. She was a pretty good kid, had perfect attendance, but first graders can be impulsive and they can be driven by emotion, especially if Alexis wanted to avoid disappointing her friends and being embarrassed in front of them. The search for Alexis began that day with investigators spreading out from the school. They checked with Alexis's friends and the neighbors to see if she was maybe hanging out at one of their houses. They also searched the nearby woods in the event she ran off and was hiding there. She had no means to be out on her own at seven years old, so they knew they had to find her quickly. As it got dark that night, they worried she was lost because as upset as a seven-year-old can get, she would have headed home after dark. They did have divers searching nearby water systems, and over the weekend, the family had tons of flyers printed up. Soon, volunteers were organized to do additional searches of the neighborhood. One man named Keith Martin had collected donations for search materials, and he spent his own money buying tons of flashlights for all the searchers. He told the media that he didn't know Alexis or her family before this, but he was just so moved to help. As the hours passed, the family stopped holding on to hope that she had run away and began to suspect she had been abducted. The police looked into Alexis's non-custodial father, Kenya Campbell, and found that he had been arrested in March for driving on a revoked license. Because it was not his first offense, he was held on bond. On May 1st, two days before Alexis disappeared, Kenya posted that bond. 
Now, that looks like a promising lead, but when the investigators looked into it further, Kenya was actually still locked up when Alexis went missing. For reasons that are unclear, he was not released for a few days after posting his bond. While Kenya could not have been the one who took Alexis, they did look into his family, but there were no indications that they had Alexis or knew where she was. Another early lead came from the school. There had been an incident prior to Alexis's disappearance where she was seen talking to a woman at the school, a woman she didn't know. This very well could have just been a friendly neighbor walking by the schoolyard that Alexis started talking to. So it wasn't an alarming situation immediately. But then just a couple of days before Alexis disappeared, a witness said Alexis was speaking to the same woman again. Alexis was told to not talk to people she didn't know after this happened. A few children at the school also said they saw a red truck parked near the school in the days before Alexis's disappearance, and then after, it was never seen again. This opened up the question if someone was stalking the school that week. I mean, there are other explanations for this truck. Maybe the person driving it was visiting someone in the neighborhood for the week and then left. But the red truck was put out in the media, and if anyone came forward saying it was their truck, that has not been reported. And yet another angle to consider. No adults except Ayana and Laron saw Alexis that day. They only had Laron's word for it that Alexis made it to school. So, of course, the parents were questioned for hours and hours that day and in the days and weeks to come. I already said I don't think the afternoon sighting makes any sense, but a few kids did say they saw Alexis that morning on the playground. I do find it notable that no adults saw her or saw Laron. Of course, Laron said he basically just walked her to the corner and made sure she crossed the street to the playground safely so you wouldn't necessarily expect them to see him. But for only kids to see her and no adults, it does make the morning sighting, in my opinion, shaky. Suspicion was on Laron and Diana, but particularly Laron, after he failed elements of his polygraph. According to the Milwaukee Police Department, the questions he failed were related to if he had any knowledge of where Alexis was. But for those who supported the family, they believed Laron was being unfairly scrutinized, in part due to his criminal record. Not that he had a record, but because of the specific crime. So let's go back to 1994. Laron was the getaway driver in a bank robbery that occurred in Glendale, Wisconsin, which is about 15 minutes outside of Milwaukee. When Officer Ronald Headbaney came to the scene, he found himself face-to-face with one of the suspects who was taking off on foot. The suspect shot Officer Headbaney in the neck, and Ronald Headbaney died on the way to the hospital at the age of 42. Laron managed to cut a deal, something not common when you are in any way involved in a crime that leads up to the murder of a police officer. 
But Laron was just the getaway driver, and he was willing to testify against the shooter, Booker Ship. This testimony was vital to the state's case, and Laron was given immunity for his cooperation. So he walked away from a crime that ended in the death of a police officer. The implication here was that the police were already biased against Laron for walking on that case. The family wasn't happy with the police focusing, they felt unfairly, on Laron because they thought it distracted them from looking elsewhere. The department said that Laron was just one of multiple leads they were following with equal energy and attention. Then on May 28th, just over three weeks after Alexis disappeared, a blatantly racist flyer was anonymously put up on the door of America's Black Holocaust Museum in Milwaukee. The flyer was about Alexis's disappearance. Now, this museum is a memorial to the Black experience in America, starting with enslavement and captivity going up through present day. The flyer essentially said that if Black people think white people cared about Alexis Patterson, they were dreadfully mistaken. The note has been described by the deputy district attorney as, quote, horribly racist, obscene, vulgar, hateful, cruel, vicious, inflammatory, and obnoxious in the extreme, end quote. So we can all just use our imaginations about the language that was used. Later, more racist and explicit flyers showed up on car windshields and in shop windows that were along the same lines. The family said they were also receiving bigoted and sexually explicit phone calls at this time. Eventually, tips came in about the flyer distributor having particular tattoos, and following this lead, the investigators found 22-year-old Brian T. Werner. When he was arrested, they found more flyers in his car along with his Nazi flag. He had the words white power tattooed inside his lower lip, and he was a well-known, loud and proud racist in the area. Being that Brian Werner was trying to tell white people to not care about a missing black child and was going out of his way to insert himself into this case like this, he looked suspicious. But in investigating him, they determined Brian Werner was a raging racist and, in my opinion, an overall terrible human being, but he was not involved in Alexis's disappearance. He was just using a missing child to spew his disgusting ideology. In the end, Brian Werner had to be released without charge. Though his flyers were very offensive, obscene, vulgar, and so on, they were also still protected speech under the First Amendment. The DA looked into it to see if there was anything in there that crossed the line and was not protected by the First Amendment, but Brian Werner managed to stay just on this side of protected speech. What is right and what is legal are not always the same thing. In June 2002, the police released some security footage from the night before Alexis was reported missing. It's only a 15-second clip, and it shows Alexis, her mother, and her stepbrother all at the Jewel Osco store 
shopping for those cupcakes Alexis planned to bring to class. In the video, Alexis was wearing the same jacket and hairstyle as she had going to school the day she disappeared. The jacket was a nylon hooded pullover that was red and had a gray stripe down the sleeve. Her hair was in two French braids that were pulled back into a ponytail. Investigators hoped that people seeing Alexis, very much how she looked on her way to school that day, would have their memories jarred a bit. Alexis's story kept receiving a lot of local attention in the media, particularly when the investigators would release things like the description of the red truck or this security footage. The case began getting national attention on shows like America's Most Wanted, though these were generally small segments. Then, on June 5th, 2002, a month after Alexis disappeared, a teen in Utah was kidnapped from her luxury home. And Elizabeth Smart's disappearance pushed many other cases out of the spotlight and out of the headlines as the 24-hour news cycle ran constant updates. Many major news outlets were sending their own reporters out to Salt Lake City to cover the case and to get exclusives. Some of those same papers weren't even picking up the few stories the Associated Press released on Alexis Patterson. They weren't even aggregating the existing coverage into a new article. They were essentially ignoring the case. So because this is part of my 12 Days of Crime Lines, as you can imagine, I have been working on this project behind the scenes for a couple of months now. So I researched this one in the middle of the Gabby Petito case, which was taking up a lot of airtime in September and October of this year. And there was conversation, including from Gabby's family, about making sure all missing persons cases get the coverage they need. That was a conversation people were having around the Elizabeth Smart kidnapping, though on a much smaller scale since we didn't have social media back then. Elizabeth Smart, much like Gabby Petito, got the coverage she deserved, coast to coast and even internationally. This was coverage that contributed to Elizabeth being found alive nine months later. And the coverage on Gabby Petito helped with the recovery of her remains. The coverage reached someone who had been in the area at that time. They went through and looked at their video and photographs that they took, and they found a shot that included Gabby Petito's van. The authorities searched near where the van was, and that's when they found her body. That's the power of the media running a case to fill the 24-hour news cycle. Yes, many are doing it for the ratings or the ad revenue, but who cares as long as it works? Now, what if Alexis's case had gotten that same attention? The disparities in reporting between Alexis Patterson's case and Elizabeth Smart's case are generally put down to race and socioeconomic status, which are similar conversations around the Gabby Petito case. Another similar case this can be compared to along the same lines is Kyron Horman. The cases are eerily similar. They were both seven. They both had a step-parent take them to school where they never made it to class. And yet Kyron Horman's case is 
more well-known. With Chiron, I think we have another factor here to consider, and that is social media. When Chiron went missing in 2010, millions more people were online and conversing about cases and sharing news. But I have noticed that this case does get brought up in true crime discussion groups, and like in Chiron's case, a lot of suspicion does fall on the step-parent. In 2003, a year after Alexis disappeared, Ayana and Laurent split up. They had a domestic dispute that he was arrested for. He was charged for beating Ayana and threatening to kill her. Their divorce was final in 2005, but from what I've seen, Ayana has never accused Laurent of doing something to Alexis. She has continued to believe Alexis was kidnapped and that she is out there somewhere. She has been vocal in the media fighting to keep Alexis's story in the public eye for nearly 20 years now. There have been tips over the years that have taken the police in a number of directions, including one that sent them all the way to Baton Rouge, a thousand miles south of Milwaukee. There were other tips that kept them closer to home, like one to a television station telling them to search the Milwaukee River. The reporting soon trailed off to mostly just anniversary coverage, but I have to say this case does get a lot of anniversary coverage, in large part due to Alexis's mother, Ayana. She is always right there at vigils, reliving her trauma by doing interviews just to keep the case out there, and she has done that while raising her other children. Alexis's story and the picture of the adorable seven-year-old with the huge smile caught Milwaukee's attention early on. But this continued coverage is because Ayana makes sure it is there, and so does the Milwaukee Police Department. That said, their prevailing theories appear to be different. Ayana believes this was an abduction and that Alexis may still be alive out there, and the authorities largely seem to continue to suspect Laurent. In 2012, there was an unusual lead in the case when serial killer Israel Keyes was arrested for the murder of Samantha Koenig. A search of his computer and his girlfriend's computer showed a list of missing persons that he searched. I talked about this list in my November Patreon episode on Israel Keys, and this list is known as the NamUs 44. Alexis Patterson is a name on the NamUs 44. Israel Keys, for some reason, had this little girl's missing persons information on his computer. It has been confirmed that two people on the NamUs 44 list were Keys victims, Bill and Lorraine Courier but there were others that definitely were not. At least one went missing before Keyes was even born. So Alexis being on the list does not mean she was kidnapped by Israel Keyes. Keyes often did not search directly for his victims, but rather information around them to hopefully stumble on the news reports. He didn't generally want his victims to be easily found having been searched on his computer. So it is possible he was looking for another case of a missing person, either from that area or in that time frame. There is another name on the name is 44 from Wisconsin, and that's 15-year-old Kayla Berg, 
who went missing from about three hours north of Milwaukee in 2009. It's possible in searching for Alexis Patterson, he was actually searching for someone else who went missing from Wisconsin in 2002. I checked the Wisconsin Missing Persons site and found four missing people, three of whom fit Key's victim profiles more than Alexis did. I also checked with Josh, the host of True Crime BS, which is a deep dive into Israel Keys. He looked in his notes and let me know that, from what he understands, Alexis is very unlikely to have been a Keys victim. In the year since Alexis's disappearance, her father, Kenya, and her stepfather, Laron, both ended up back in prison. And with their subsequent court cases, Alexis's case got a little more media attention. Laron's charge was in 2009, and that was for selling heroin. Kenya was charged with felony child abuse and child neglect for abusing his infant daughter in late 2013. The injuries were severe, very severe. Kenya was given an 18-year prison sentence, but we already know he could not have been involved in Alexis's kidnapping because he was in jail for other charges. Then in 2016, a very interesting tip came in from a man in Ohio named Joshua. He was sure that his ex-wife was Alexis. He said he always thought it was odd that she had no real memories of her childhood until the age of 10. She only seemed to know that she was born in Central America and moved to California at some point in her childhood. She didn't have the usual remnants of a childhood, like school papers or even photographs, like he would expect. After they split up and were dealing with custody issues, Joshua decided to look into his ex-wife's past a little bit more. He and his new fiance came across the age progression photograph of Alexis, and it looked shockingly like his ex. From what I've heard, the resemblance is very close, and she actually looks a lot like Alexis's mom. Beyond that, the woman had a mole over her left eye, a birthmark, a scar under her right eye, and an unusual bump on her pinky finger, all little marks that matched Alexis. And these are very specific similarities. You can imagine multiple people sharing one or two of them, but all four, the odds seemed astronomical. And while the woman spoke with the authorities and was willing to provide a DNA sample, she was not fond of the scrutiny on her life or the media attention. That's why I'm not even using her first name. This entire experience was very difficult for her. She said she wasn't Alexis, and not only that, it was impossible for her to be Alexis. The main reason, she was 28 years old. She had a birth certificate from 1988 from Belize to prove it. Alexis would have been 21 at the time of the DNA test. Passing off a child for seven years older than they actually were was unlikely to work. Between doctors and school officials, someone is going to notice when a 17-year-old is more on par with a 10-year-old developmentally. Add to that, the woman married Joshua in 2009 when Alexis would have been 14. Again, 14 versus 21. 
That's a big difference in development. When this woman had her two children, surely the OBGYN would have noticed. Even the most mature-looking 14- and 15-year-old might be able to sneak into a club, but they're not going to get that past a doctor. So it wasn't a surprise to the authorities when the DNA test came back not a match to Alexis. Ayana initially wanted to run the test again because the similarities between this woman and Alexis and Ayana were really just too much. And perhaps the older DNA sample from Alexis that they ran the tests against, maybe it was too degraded or it was contaminated. The police, as far as I know, have not rerun the tests, and it's probably largely due to the age issue. The woman in Ohio was presenting herself to be seven years older than Alexis would have been, and at some point, someone would have noticed. I also think a hesitancy to rerun a DNA test may come down to the fact that the police do not appear to be working the theory that Alexis is still alive out there. In 2017, in the wake of the DNA test, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark said he didn't believe Alexis was ever dropped off at school. He believed the answer to what happened to Alexis laid with Laurent Bourgeois, who continued to deny involvement. And the sentiment that Laurent had the answers was echoed when, in January 2021, the 52-year-old stepfather of Alexis Patterson, who was the last person to see her alive, died of a drug overdose alongside his wife, Michelle. What, if anything, he knew about Alexis's disappearance went with him. Laurent's death did provide another opportunity for Alexis's case to get media attention, and the Milwaukee PD said this coverage did generate new tips. Alexis Patterson would be 26 years old today. She has black hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a red nylon pullover hoodie with gray stripes running down the sleeves. She was wearing a light purple shirt, blue jeans, and white Nikes. She was also carrying her pink Barbie backpack. There is a $10,000 reward for anyone with information that leads to her whereabouts. You can contact the sheriff's office at 414-278-4788 or at 1-800-THE-LOST. These numbers will be in the show notes. 